75 years ago this week, on January the 27th, 1945, Soviet forces liberated the death camp at Auschwitz. It was a site where, in a span of five years, on a stretch of ground covering more than 470 acres, over 1.1 million people were murdered. Yet, upon arriving into the camp, the Soviet authorities chose not to widely report their discoveries, referring to the survivors instead as simply victims of fascism. While in itself not a lie, the statement issued was grossly disingenuous. As far as Stalin was concerned, it was more important that communism advance, and so the discovered barbarism was viewed merely as an example of Western moral decay. So it wasn't until some three months later in April, as American and British forces came upon Dachau, Bergen-Belsen and Buchenwald, that the camps were recognised for what they were, the largest crime scenes in history. When the Allied forces initially walked through the gates, one of the first things the generals decided upon was to film what they saw. The sights were so beyond the realm of human decency, they instantly knew that there was a profound risk the world would not believe the reports unless visual documentation were presented. This was murder as never imagined before. An industrialised programme with a method and scale so vast, the United States Holocaust Museum estimates that 17 million people were murdered at the hands of Hitler and his henchmen. Jewish people account for almost one-third of that number. Sinti and Roma groups were also singled out, while yet more victims were targeted along religious, national and political lines, as well as sexual orientation and physical and mental disabilities. The Nazis had all but reduced European civilization to rubble. Surveying the ruin, Theodor Adorno declared, there can be no poetry after Auschwitz. How could there be? How could any art possibly approach upon understanding, let alone representing the Holocaust? But how else can history bear witness? Is personal testimony the only way to relate what happened? What happens when the last witness dies? Here is Auschwitz survivor Dario Gabe, who was forced to work as a Sonderkommando. They closed the doors and, uh, you know, then I knew that the SS through the Cyclone B, you know, from uh, above three, four openings. And uh, when, you know, it takes about four or five minutes to die, except the people that are in front where the gas is coming, that it takes about a couple of minutes. After 15, 20 minutes, they open up the thing. The first thing I see, I saw the people I saw 15 minutes before alive. I saw the mothers with the children, everybody standing up. There was no room for anything else but standing up. And when you see that after, it's, you know, some of them are black and blues from the gas, it's, it's something that I said to myself, how can you, somebody, be able to survive in such an environment? Yet, while the world recalled at images of tattooed and emaciated inmates, gas chambers and ovens caked with ash, and acre upon acre of barbed wire and wooden barracks, where there were so many corpses, Allied soldiers had to use bulldozers to push them into open pits. Barely five months later, there came a film that was so humanist in tone, yet radical in aesthetic, it opened an avenue where art could at least begin to consider what happened in the death camps. Prior to World War II, Cinema's dominant form had been romanticism, a tone so fanciful as to be suddenly outdated and thus completely ill-equipped to deal in any meaningful way with the brutality of fascism's crimes. Clearly, cinema needed to find a different aesthetic. That aesthetic was neorealism. Directed by Roberto Rossellini, 
Rome Open City is not a Holocaust picture, but it did manage to forge the tone that would help filmmakers figure out a way to address the realities of the crimes committed. Here is Professor Carolyn Reich of Fordham University talking to Jerry Carlson on City Cinema Tech about what Rossellini managed to do and the difficulties he faced in doing it. It's like nothing audiences had seen before in the sense it had on-location shooting with the idea to create that you were actually there, that you were there while they were filming it. Uh, there was a casual mix of professional and non-professional actors. Uh, it was not something that people had seen. Um, most importantly, the subject matter was new because it was the first time, really, that they were able to film about the war and what was happening in Italy at that time. And that was Rossellini's great concern, is his goal was to film reality as it was happening, right? What was out there, the experience of everyday people. It was tough filmmaking. Yeah. It was hard to find stock. It was hard to find electricity. So it was, in a certain kind of sense, a new way of filmmaking given the circumstances. Originally planned as two separate documentaries to commemorate the life of Don Pietro Morosini, who was murdered by the Nazis for assisting the Italian resistance, as well as the children of Rome who fought against the occupation. Rossellini and his fellow screenwriters, Federico Fellini and Sergio Amade, then decided to fuse those two subjects into one fictional film. With producer Peppino Amato, Rossellini initially hoped to begin filming in September of 1944. However, delays ensued and the start date was pushed back to January. It is of course a coincidence, but around about the same time that the Soviet army was entering Auschwitz, production began, and then stalled. Stalled because when Amato viewed the rushes, he was appalled to discover that Rossellini had filmed a lengthy and gruesome torture scene. Amato withdrew from the project and took his money with him, leaving Rossellini with no choice but to suspend filming and go in search of a new backer. Again, it is just a coincidence, but Rossellini was able to get the cameras rolling again around about the same time that the Allies were liberating Dachau, Bergen-Belsen and Buchenwald. Let us consider once more that timeline. Be it January or April, the war was still being fought in Italy, all of which provided a rapid energy to the production, the rekindling hope of freedom bristling through the restless cast and crew. And that can be seen on the screen. Shooting at such a pace and under such restricted circumstances, Rossellini had to secure film stock by any means possible, procuring it through request, stealing it, or with the assistance of Rod E. Geiger, who was in the American Signal Corps, commandeering stock meant for newsreel teams. That resulted in a wildly fluctuating quality of image, which in turn gave the impression that this film was a collection of newsreels patched together to create a documentary account of life in occupied Rome. And just as quickly as Rossellini shot the film, it was edited and out in theatres by October the 5th that same year. Received with considerable hostility in an Italy now divided along Catholic and communist lines, it was only when Rome Open City screened at the Cannes Film Festival the following year that the international community saw and understood what Rossellini had achieved. Honoured with the Palme d'Or, Rome Open City did nothing less than alter forever film language and its cinematic landscape. Here is Stefano Albertini, professor of the Italian department at New York University, reading from an interview not with Rossellini, but with Vittorio De Sica, whose comments nonetheless apply to neorealism in general. But it really originates neorealism with the moral reaction to the destruction of war and the devastation brought about by fascism in Italy. 
Um, so the experience of the war was decisive for us all. Each felt the desire to throw away all the old stories of Italian cinema, to plant the camera in the midst of real life, in the midst of all that struck our astonished eyes. Uh, we sought to liberate ourselves from the weight of our sins. We wanted to look ourselves in the face and tell ourselves the truth, to discover what really were and to seek salvation. What it meant that on top of the desire for a moral rebirth of the country, there are all these religious images to talk about open city, because we will see so many uh, examples of redemption, salvation, um, resurrection. De Sica's commitment to plant the camera in the midst of real life can be seen in a fleeting moment just 10 minutes into Rossellini's film. Pina, played by Anna Magnani, has come home to find a stranger, Giorgio, played by Marcello Pagliero, waiting on the landing in front of her flat. Suspicious as to who he is, Pina is relieved to learn he is a friend of her fiancé Francesco, played by Francesco Grangiacchi. Giorgio needs to gain access to Francesco's room, and realising now that Giorgio is part of the resistance, Pina goes into her own flat to retrieve the key. But instead of following Pina, Rossellini lets the camera linger on Giorgio as he waits. And as he waits, two young girls climb up the stairs with a heavy pail of water. It seems trivial, but in that one moment, Rossellini opens cinema up to the idea that lives exist beyond the frame. The girls pass through the frame on their way to their own destinations because the camera just happened to be there. The girls' appearance is so fleeting as to be inconsequential. But that is precisely the point. It is not inconsequential. By showing the girls struggling up the stairs, Rossellini was aiming to restore an importance to every event in life, no matter how small and seemingly trivial. With the camera now in the midst of life, neorealism was a reconstitution of life, of life all but destroyed by an ideology so dehumanising it stripped individuals of their identity and left nothing behind but mounds of glasses, shoes, coats, postcards, teeth. In that way, neorealism became the cinema of life, of hope, of defiance and protest. The decision to have the girls carrying a pail of water is no less important, because that moment becomes a spectacle in itself, a signifier of life in all its unexpected jerky motion spilling over the edge. Martin Scorsese has described Rome Open City as the most precious moment in film history, and here is the director himself speaking on the Criterion Blu-ray collection. The power of the neorealist movement at the end of World War II, the effect of Open City and Paisa, and of course, De Sica's film, Bicycle Thieves, the spiritual rehabilitation of an entire culture and people uh, through cinema. Do you keep making the same kind of film? Or if you're a person like Rossellini, uh, uh, which few are, uh, you try something experimental, you push further. So from Rossellini's direction, Cinema now had a moral purpose to rehabilitate an entire culture almost wrought asunder. Cinema no longer had to dramatise life, it only had to depict it. And through depicting life, the art form could somehow begin its path to acknowledging what happened in the Holocaust. Thus, it paved the way for such landmark pictures as André Vajra's The Generation, Canal and Ashes and Diamonds, Jan Kadar and Erma Close's The Shop on Main Street, Elam Klimov's Come and See, Anushka Holland's Europa Europa, Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, Roman Polanski's The Pianist, and Lajlo Nemesis' Son of Soul. At the climax of Rome Open City, 
Rossellini delivers another moment where a seemingly trivial act is observed, but this time the observation is not a celebration of life, but rather a commentary on how it was discarded. Don Pietro, played by Aldo Fabrizi, has been captured by the Gestapo and forced to watch as they interrogated, tortured and then murdered Giorgio. Then Don Pietro is led out for execution. In an open field, he is tied to a chair and the firing squad prepare their rifles. Standing by is a Gestapo officer. Nonchalantly, he lights a cigarette and Rossellini has the camera linger on him as he smokes. Don Pietro's life would last as long as the officer took to finish a cigarette. Such was the value fascism placed on life. Yet, for all of Rossellini's focusing on and thus celebrating life's minutiae, for the film's most powerful, shocking and lasting moment, he chose a different approach. The entire sequence is the film's centrepiece, taking over 10 minutes, and throughout its construction, Rossellini layers it with unbearable tension. The Gestapo have been alerted to the whereabouts of the resistance, and they swoop on the buildings to capture Giorgio, Francesco and their comrades. Cutting back and forth between the resistance as they try to hide, as the children, including Pina's son Marcello, played by Vito Aniciatico, race to alert Don Pietro as to what is happening, and then back to the Gestapo as they round up the local women and line them up in the square. To the people involved in front of and behind the camera, what was happening was in all likelihood a reenactment of some atrocity that many of them would probably have witnessed. But because Rossellini has long since provided the air of reality, we don't consider this to be a moment from a generic thriller. Suddenly, Pina sees Francesco has been captured and is being led away to a certain execution. Selflessly, she breaks free from the guards and races from the square and out into the street. Her son Marcello is already there with Don Pietro, but she rushes past in the hope of catching up with her fiancé. Francesco! 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 Pina! 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 No film ever before in the history of cinema had dared kill its leading character in such a matter-of-fact way. But here is the thing. In another film, the director would have shown the soldier who fired the shots. Look carefully and you will notice that Rossellini didn't include it. More than that, Rossellini resisted the temptation of showing us the faces of Francesco, Don Pietro and even Marcello. Again, Rossellini knew he didn't need to, for to do so would have turned the shock into bathos. He knew the audience didn't need affirmation of what to feel. What they were seeing was enough. So instead, he keeps her view of the killing at a distance. Which means it all happens so fast, it feels as if we were watching footage from a documentary that just happened to capture a life being cut down. But then, from a neorealist perspective, Rossellini cuts to another angle as Marcello races in and, grief-stricken, falls on his mother's dead body. Then, Don Pietro steps forward and, lifting away the welling sun, takes Pina in his arms. Instantly and seamlessly, Rossellini eases us from brutal realism into the realm of iconography. The reason why it works is because how he manages to invert the motif. Just as for centuries, countless artists had depicted Mother Mary holding the body of her dead son Jesus, 
so too does Don Pietro cradle Pina in an all-too-vivid Pieta. If there were a way for artists to create poetry after Auschwitz, this was one way it could be done. Keep your distance, be real, but the instant even that distance becomes too much, admit to metaphor, only invert it to neutralise it. Rome Open City is many things, to most people the first example of neorealism, to others the birth of modern cinema itself. But for me it stands as cinema's contribution to the revival of civilization in the wake of the Holocaust. <laughs>